that. That's wonderful. Amazing grace, man. The greatest word in the life of a believer is the word grace. Because we would not be where we were or where we are without that grace. And so praise the Lord for that. Thank you, young people, for honoring the Lord. Uh, and I, I know I was poking fun before, but uh, honestly, it is a blessing to be a part of a church where young people really mean what they sing and they live the life. They live the Christian life. This week, uh, this past week, by the way, continue to pray for our youth department. This past week, Pastor and I went to Oklahoma City, and uh, we were interviewing some guys and talking to them about a possibility of coming and serving alongside our youth department, and I never had to tell a single lie, neither did Pastor, in saying that our youth department is probably the best that they'll ever be able to uh, minister to as far as their spirit and their countenance and their love for the Lord. It's very rare and usually you come to a youth department and, uh, you know, we're all sinners, by the way, and so just don't think that there's no hypocrites in church. And there's plenty of hypocrites in our youth department, as is in every youth department. But I will say that it is kind of rare walking into a youth department and seeing more kids who are serving the Lord than not. And at least the ones who are serving the Lord, as far as their countenance and all those things, if they're faking it, they're really doing a good job because I really believe that most of our young people have a great walk with the Lord and so praise the Lord for that and so should you. You ought to praise the Lord for young people that love the Lord. Uh, they're gonna fill your pew someday and they're the ones who are gonna be replacing me and pastor. Uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna replace you as a Sunday school teacher and so uh, not only thank the Lord for them but invest in them. Talk to them, pray for them, let them know that you're praying for them. Don't treat them like the scum of the earth. And we make fun at their expense, but a lot of the times I kind of feel like we do a disservice to them by doing that because really they have a better heart than some of us do as adults. And so I just thought I'd throw that out there. That's free, it's not in part of the message tonight, but uh, praise the Lord for young people that love the Lord and serve the Lord. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy Yourself is a popular song written by Charles Sigmund and lyrics by uh, Herb Megaton. Recorded by Guy Leonardo and his Royal Canadians, the recording was released by Decca Records in November of 1949. The record first reached the Billboard record charts in the U.S. on January 13th of 1950 and lasted 19 weeks on the chart, peaking at number 10. Its upbeat jingle and happy-go-lucky lyrics make it easy to see why it lasted so long on Billboard's Top 100. How many of you have ever heard the song, Enjoy Yourself? I knew Brother Olzak would ha have heard of it, uh, but uh, let me just read you some of the lyrics. I like it. You work and work for years and years. You're always on the go. You never take a minute off too busy making dough. Someday you say you'll have your fun uh, when you're a millionaire. Imagine all the fun you'll have in your old rocking chair. Enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Second verse, you're gonna take that ocean trip no matter come what may. You've got your reservation made, but you just can't get away. Next year for sure you'll see the world, you'll really get around. But how far can you travel when you're six feet underground? Enjoy yourself. Your heart of hearts, your dream of dreams, your ravishing brunette. She left you and she's now become somebody else's pet. Lay down that gun, don't try my friend to reach the great beyond. You'll find more fun by reaching for a redhead or a blonde. Verse four, you never go to nightclubs and you just don't care to dance. You don't have time for silly things like moonlight and romance. You only think of dollar bills tied neatly in a stack. But when you kiss a dollar bud, it doesn't kiss you back. 
Another birthday here and gone, you've turned another page, and suddenly you realize that you've reached the middle age. Just think of all the fun you've missed. It makes you kind of sad. It's better to have ha uh, uh, had your wish than to have wish you had. You worry when the weather's cold. You worry when it's hot. You worry when you're doing well. You worry when you're not. It's worry, worry all the time. You don't know how to laugh. They'll think of something funny when they write your epitaph. You love somebody very much. You want to set a date. But so, uh, money doesn't grow on trees, so you decide to wait. You're so afraid that you might bite off more than you can chew. Don't be afraid. You won't have teeth when they turn 92. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. How many of you, again, have ever at least heard that song or parts of that song? Okay, now I got more hands uh, after I began to sing it so beautifully. All of you started to recollect and remember. And you know what's funny about that song? It was written in 1940, uh, excuse me, written in 1949 and popularized in 1950. And I hope I didn't offend anybody by reading those lyrics, but uh, I kind of like that song. I know it's not a biblical song, and there's certain aspects that we wouldn't agree with in regards to the verses about, uh, you know, nightclubs and so forth. But nonetheless, it kind of has a fun jingle, and it kind of just makes you smile a little bit. And the reason that I referenced that song and the reason that I shared it with you this evening is because, as I said this morning, um, the tendency and the lie that Christians are buying an, into is that everything that's, that song has to do with, we must live the opposite, okay? In other words, we are not allowed, it is against the Bible for us to enjoy ourselves. Get out of here. That is a bunch of, as Pastor would say, baloney. That is a bunch, uh, that makes absolutely no sense. And I can tell you right now, having been a Christian for some 25 years, that the best times in my life, in the history of my life, have been when I have been walking in the center of God's will. And it is not a life that I must endure. It is a life that I very much enjoy. Amen. I thought I'd get some amens there. It, it, we don't have to endure the Christian life. It's not something that we just have to get by and to just get through, just get through another day. The Christian life, when lived exactly how God wants us to live, is an enjoyable life. And there's a bunch of sticks in the mud that don't want to have a good time and that want to just kind of endure the Christian life. How many of you believe that your pastor would have a word to say against them? How many of you know Pastor Farinella, if anybody in the history of the world likes to enjoy himself? I mean, seriously, he can't even tell a joke without laughing midway through the punchline. Pastor enjoys himself. It's okay to enjoy yourself. It's okay to have a good time. Now turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we'll be tonight. In Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, we'll read uh, just a few verses to get us started, but we're all going to cover most of the chapter in its, in its entirety tonight. But just by way of introduction, let's read verse 11 down through verse number 15. Ecclesiastes 3, are you there? Ecclesiastes 3, verse number 11. Great verse in the Bible right here. It says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. 
I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past." Tonight, for just a few moments, in light of Ecclesiastes chapter number three, and in light of our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, Meaningless, which it's come to be known as what we've titled it as, I'd like to talk to you about this subject. Ready? It's okay to enjoy yourself. It's okay to enjoy yourself. My, the contrast between the previous four messages that we've preached and this message, it's okay to enjoy yourself. Uh, again, uh, we kind of looked at it, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we looked at the first couple of chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, and just right off the bat, within the first two verses, we're off to a rough start. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. All right, uh, and he says, everything under the sun is meaningless. Everything under the sun is a waste of time. And we even saw later that he's going to say, I therefore hated my life. Man, we're off to a rough start, but uh, Solomon kind of takes a break. He'll get back to the gloom and doom, okay? But he kind of takes a break and says, time out, hold on. Don't be misconstrued. I want you to understand something. You can and should enjoy yourself. You can and you should enjoy yourself. I'd like to talk to you about that tonight. Let's pray real quick. Lord, pray that you'd be with me tonight in a very special way, that you'd fill me with your power as I preach. Uh, I don't want to say anything that you don't want me to say, but I want to say everything that you want me to say. And it's very easy for me to get in, 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 uh, in the way of the Holy Spirit, Lord, as I uh, preach and, Lord, as I share illustrations and I do all those things. That's not what is important. What is important is what comes directly out of your word. So, Lord, I pray tonight that you would speak to me that you'd slow my tongue, that people could understand what I'm saying, but also, Lord, I pray that I'd get across the message in which I believe you would have us uh, here tonight. It's okay for us to enjoy ourselves, but there's a metric, there's a formula that we must follow. It's not okay for us to just do as we please. Lord, we need to follow your formula, but I'm thankful that when we do that, life is an enjoyable experience. Pray that you'd be with us tonight in a special way in Jesus' name, amen. In 1994, Forbes magazine conducted a survey of our nation's elite in regards to the magnitude of their wealth. The criteria for what they would consider to be elite was simply anyone who made more than $500,000 a year. They surveyed 8,000 people in 49 states, and the survey consisted of several simple questions regarding the accumulation of their wealth. Questions like this, how did you get to where you are today? What was your first job? And other questions very similar to that. And they asked another question that I'd like to draw our attention to tonight. Uh, they asked this question, what would you change about your life today if you made more money than you do right now? Again, they're talking to the elite of our nation in regards to the magnitude of their wealth. Anybody who makes over $500,000 a year, how many of you are already disqualified? Okay, oh, a lot more hands should be raised there, okay, unless... You guys make more money than I think. But nonetheless, they, they conduct this interview and they ask him that posed, uh, pointed question, what would you do if you made more money today than you do right now? What would you do? And I found that the answers were quite astounding. 70% of them said that they would live in a bigger house. Live in a bigger house. By the way, the article does mention that the, uh, that the average square footage of the homes was just a measly little 8,200 square feet, okay? So, man, they're really roughing it, so I could understand why they would say, man, if I made more money, I would definitely buy a bigger house because the 8,200 square feet uh, house that I have is simply just not big enough. Check this one out. This one's actually kind of sad. 
30% of them said that they would marry a different spouse. I don't understand what wealth has uh, to do with that, but nonetheless, 30% of them, and this was male and female, they came to the conclusion that if they made more money than they did right now, 30% of them said, I would have a different spouse, marry a different person. And they asked some other questions. I won't go into the percentages, but as the article continued, it was evident to see that if given the choice and the opportunity and the resources, our nation's elite were not satisfied with what they had, and if given the chance, they would take more. If given the opportunity, they would take more. And I share that illustration, and I even had it in my notes to share with you in regards to the magnitude of their wealth and how they're never satisfied, and I was, gonna, I was going to draw the, uh, the comparison to the life of Solomon, but then God did something on Friday night. I mentioned it briefly this morning. God brought in my contact a modern-day Solomon. It's very interesting. I won't share all the illustration because it would take too long, but I'd encourage you to ask me later about what took place. It was an act of God. It was a providential divine appointment that I met the man that I met on Friday night. Me and Pastor are traveling back from uh, Oklahoma City, and uh, I had selected the chair, and I almost, they offered me a $600 voucher if I stayed in uh, Dallas and would have stayed until the 7 o'clock flight, and I almost did it, but I chose to go ahead and let's just go home. I'll get home to my family, and I selected the seat in which I sat in. On my phone, I selected seat 25, row 25, seat B. It's in an exit row, and I had all this idea of why I selected that seat, because it's got a nice little tray, uh, and it's the last seat that has a tray, so I could study my sermon and do all those things. And so I get, I get settled in, and they said it was a full flight, and uh, no one was sitting in the seat to the right of me. And so again, I'm sitting there waiting uh, for the t- flight to take off. I'm about to get my laptop out and begin studying, and I had my Bible, my Bible, my A.W. Tozer Bible. It's not, where's my Bible at? It's not there, never mind. My Bible was uh, seated, it was in the cubby that was in front of me. And down walks the middle aisle, a guy about uh, maybe five foot eight, five foot nine, 200 pounds, uh, obviously an expensive, very nice suit, nice pants, nice shoes. Uh, He had a briefcase, leather briefcase, a nice phone on his hip, had designer sunglasses on his head, and he obviously was, I mean, like the elite, okay? I could just tell by... Uh, the energy that he was putting off that this guy was the real deal. And I could also tell that he was elite because he was making a big deal at the stewardess at the fact that he was not in first class like he was supposed to be and that he had to bum it with the rest of us scrubs there in coach. And so anyways, he comes and he sits next to me and I kid you not, if I were to share the vocabulary in which he was using, I'd be kicked out of this church just like that. Every other word was an expletive and he was just cussing up a storm and he comes and he kind of sits in his seat and he's frustrated and he kind of grabs his, uh, his mouth like this and he, looks, and he looks down and he sees my Bible. And he said, is that a Bible? And I said, it is. He said, are you a preacher? And I said, I am. And he said, oh, and then explicit. I'm so sorry about that. Cuss, <laughs> yeah. And he spared no swings. For the next four hours, he drilled, I'm ordained, by the way, right now, I'm ordained. That was my ordination service right there because the questions that he, were asking, that he was asking was of major weight. He sat and he asked me all sorts of questions, and I can tell you, he did not ask the questions so that he could find out what I know. He asked the questions so that he could refute them because of what he knows. Very logicious, very smart, very educated man. And he began to brag and he began to talk about his lifestyle. He called himself a modern day playboy. And he talked about all the money that he makes. I would say that he would meet the criteria for the survey that they did, making over $500,000 a year. I probably think he made more than that. 
He talked about all the money that he's making. He talked about, and I'm not trying to be graphic, but he talked about the, the trip before there in Dallas about the hookers that he was with. I'm serious. He, he did not care. And he wasn't trying to be mean to me. I actually kind of built a friendship with him. Pastor can tell you about that later. But uh, he was talking to me and telling me about the life that he's lived, telling me about the people that he's been with, telling me about all of his accomplishments in regards to his job and everything that he's done in his life. And I couldn't help but think, and my heart began to break as he's explaining all the things that he's done. And I'm like, goodness gracious. You, and I actually said this. I said, you are a modern-day Solomon. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I opened up the Bible and I told him about Solomon, King Solomon, and how I've been preaching to our church uh, the life of this man, and I told him it this way. I said, the life of a man who's probably done 10 times more things than you've done in regards to his accomplishments, in regards to his wealth, in regards to his, his knowledge, obviously, and the, the people that he's been with, you've been with some hookers. This guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he could not believe that. He was like, are you kidding me? Wow. My heart kind of broke, and this is his vernacular. This is, I, I'm not trying to force an illustration out of what happened. This is exactly what he said. He talked about his finances and his money, talked about the women that he's been with, and he talked about all those different categories, and this is his words, not mine. He said, I've done it all, seen it all, felt it all, explicit, 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 and you know what I've discovered? None of it's fulfilling. That was straight from his mouth. None of it was fulfilling, and I, I'm thankful to report I did have an opportunity to share a condensed version of the gospel whenever he would let me get a word in edgewise. And even as we left, it was very neat to see, as we left, he went on in front of me before I could actually get his contact information. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to track him down. He waited for me. In the, at the end of the, the tunnel, he waited for me and he said, hey, we need to exchange information. I don't want to be, this to be the last time that we talk. So I got my business card out, wrote my number. I was able to introduce him to pastor. And he told me, shook his hand, shook my hand, looked me in the eye, and he said, hey, I'm going to come to your church, and when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So you pray for him. You pray for him. He lives in Lake Union, and I'm praying that God will give him the opportunity to come. But the reason I share that with you in the illustration even previous to that is that it is no news to us that the world is searching for meaning in all the wrong places. They're trying to find meaning. They're trying to find joy. They're trying to find happiness, and they're having a great time doing it, but there's a giant void in their soul, and there's nothing there. And I couldn't help but think of the life of Solomon. I wanted to share that with you tonight. A modern day Solomon, the things that he was trying to attain and put his hands on, he even came to the conclusion that it was all worthless. It's very interesting to note a shift, however. A shift that takes place in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. I know it seems like we're off to a, maybe a gloomy start, but this is going to be an encouraging message. I promise you that. If you listen and pay attention tonight, I want you to notice a very significant shift that takes place here in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. I didn't mention it specifically, but you'll notice that in the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a word or a form or a root of a word that appears. It's our favorite word in the English vocabulary. It's the word I, me. My, mine, talking about himself. I kind of laughingly thought about the Toby Keith song, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I. How many of you heard that song? That was probably Solomon's favorite song. First two chapters, all he's doing is talking about himself. He's talking about all the things that he uh, has experienced, and he's talking about himself in the first person, Solomon, I, me, my. Uh, and, and again, we closed last week with Solomon saying one of the saddest things that anybody has ever breathed the breath of life could ever utter. What does he say? Therefore, I hated life. I hated my life. But again, it switches. In chapter number three, this paradigm shift takes place. Solomon uh, has taken the spotlight, finally, 
has taken the spotlight off of himself and now he's going to put it onto something else or somebody else. It's very interesting to note, he takes a time out. He's going to get back to the gloom and doom, but he takes a time out in chapter number three and here's what he tells us. He's going to tell us how to enjoy our life. He's going to tell us how to enjoy ourselves. Many people today are just trying to endure life. I already spoke of that. They're trying to just get by. And when you look past the cars and the houses and the pleasures and the vacations, and you look past all of the things that they have in their palm, I can't help but think of Mr. Stephen, the guy I met on the plane. When you look past all the possessions that they have and all that they've accomplished, and you look into their eyes, you know what you see? Complete emptiness and despair. Emptiness. Meaningless. Some are even looking for opportunities to escape life. I'm not necessarily talking about suicide. I did mention that just last week and a few weeks ago. And again, that is a very real thing. I hope you've realized that in this series is that we should not mess around when it comes to addressing the people in our church and the people in Christianity that suffer from depression, suffer from self-harm, and suffer from suicidal thoughts. It's a real deal. It's a real thing, and I hope that if anybody ever shares with you uh, the fact that they're depressed or that they self-harm or they're thinking of suicide, you better take it seriously, you'll wish you had. But I'm not necessarily talking about escaping life in that you end your life. How many of you have ever heard this, I wish I could just start over? Hmm, man, I wish I could just turn back the clock and start my life over. I wish that I was a different person. I wish that this circumstance or that circumstance wasn't present in my life. I'm talking about escaping the life that they've built. The life that they've built around themselves and how a lot of people are trying to escape the life that they've built any way, shape, or form that they possibly can. Uh, it, it dumbfounds us and it breaks our heart uh, when we see a, a man leave his, his wife and leave his family for some bimbo that he barely even knows. But just know that before that bimbo ever came in his life, he was looking for a way to escape. We're looking for ways to escape. When it comes to the world and the sorrow and the despair, maybe they're not suicidal, but everybody is looking for a way out. Everybody's looking for a means of escape to escape the life in which they've built around them. You can see it on people's faces. They just want to get through another day. I just want to get through another day. I want to get through another business meeting. I want to get through a, a, another family reunion. I want to just get by, get through. We all know that according to John chapter number 10 and verse number 10, that's exactly what Satan wants them to do. John 10 and verse number 10, it says the thief, that's Satan. The thief cometh to not but to, uh, for to steal and to kill and to destroy, and Satan is good at it. Satan is very proficient at his job. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to live a life not receiving the fullness of joy that you can experience in the second part of that verse. But I am come that ye might have life, but not just life through my son Jesus Christ, but ye might have life, what? More abundantly. More abundantly. In spite of what uh, we think at times, and in spite of what some numbskull preacher might have told you years ago, I want you to understand and know, God wants you to enjoy yourself. God wants you to enjoy your life. God does not want you to just mingle by the Christian life and just endure till Jesus comes. I've even referenced this before, but there's a certain song that I don't like in our hymnal, Until Then. Until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy, I'll carry on. Until the day. Hey, God wants you to enjoy life right now where you are in whatever stage of life you're in. God desires that you enjoy yourself. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter number three, we're gonna see this formula that Solomon lays out on how to enjoy your life to the fullest. But we need to understand, and I mentioned it in my prayer, it's not just something you get to incline yourself to on your own terms. You must follow the formula that is found in the word of God in order to experience true joy. A few things I want us to notice tonight very quickly. Number one, Solomon's trying to tell us life is measured by sovereignty, not sequence. Life is measured by sovereignty, not sequence. Uh, how many of you remember or have ever heard of the group from the 60s, The Birds, B-Y-R-D-S? Ah, oh, I got some smiles there. The Birds. By the way, welcome to Wooden Valley Baptist Church where Lamar keeps you up to date on all the 80s, 90s rock groups. How many of you remember the song? To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn. Everybody now, no, I'm just kidding. You remember that song? The lyrics, except for the title, which is repeated throughout the song and in the final two lines, consists of the first eight verses of the third chapter of our book that we're studying, the book of Ecclesiastes. The song became an international hit in late 1965 when it was adopted by the American folk rock group, The Birds, B-Y-R-D-S. The single entered the U.S. charts at number 80 on, two, uh, on October 23rd of 1965 before reaching number one on the Billboard's Hot 100 chart on December 4th of 1965. And in Canada, it reached number three. In the UK, it reached number 26. That song was a very popular song. It was number one on the charts for like 19 weeks in a row. Uh, why was that song so popular in the 60s? Why was that song such a popular thing? Many of you have even uh, heard of it or you remember the words to it even today. Why was it so popular? Here's why it was popular. is because there was a culture uh, that believed that life was just stagnant and life was just purposeless. But that song actually taught them that life is a series of changing seasons. It's a series of changing events. To everything there is a season. Let's look at the verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Very popular verses. Verse number 1, it says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. And again, I would venture to say that maybe next to John 3, 16 and Genesis 1, this chapter, I'm not talking about in Christendom, I'm talking about in the secular world, it might be one of the most popular texts ever written in history. So many people know of that, uh, of that uh, passage of scripture, and maybe you've heard it in a funeral setting, or you've heard it in a memorial setting, and a pastor's gone up as they mourned the loss of someone's life, and he would get up and he said, hey, to everything there is a season, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that that which is planted again. It's very popular, even amongst those who are outside of the walls of the church, but how many of you would agree with this statement that context is everything when it comes to the word of God? Context is everything when it comes to the word of God. We need to understand the context, and what's interesting to note is that before you can understand the context of verse number two through verse number eight, you must first understand the context of verse number one. 
And there's a very important phrase that appears in verse number one. I want us to look at it. We must first understand the context of this phrase and it completely changes the definition of the phrases to follow. Here it is. Verse number one, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose. Here's the phrase. Under the heavens. Under the heavens, that's very important. Lamar, why is that so important? Why does that change the context of the scripture? Again, who's talking here? Solomon. And I'm just curious, how many of you have been the previous several weeks as we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes? How many of you have been here and you've experienced that? There's a phrase that's very similar to that phrase, under the, uh, under the heaven, that appears 25 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he repeats it time and time again in the first two chapters. What is it, church? Under the, under the sun. Under the sun. We, we, we learned a few weeks ago that that simply means life here on earth. All right? Life here on earth, the existence that we experience life here on earth. And I'm going to take it a step further, and I believe that I have biblical grounds to define this this way. I believe that Solomon is describing it this way. A godless worldview, okay? Under the sun, a godless worldview, that we're living a life under the sun, and that's what it looks like. But Solomon is now saying that if you're going to experience the fullness of joy in your life under the sun, here we go, your perspective must change. You must have a change in your perspective. Remember the mechanical monotony of, of life and how in the first two chapters he even references the cycle of the sun, the cycle of the waters, how it rains. It goes into the, uh, goes into the river, the river returns to the ocean, it evaporates back into the clouds and then the cycle starts all over again and he, he compares it to life. And he says, hey, we're born and we die and things that happen in between and nonetheless we have an expiration date and he kind of compares life, the godless worldview, as just a beginning and an end and that's it. Now we're no longer living under the sun, though. If your perspective has changed, you are now not looking at life from beginning to end as the sun rises and the sun sets. Now you are looking at things through, uh, let's see, an eternal realm, an eternal perspective under heaven. This phrase gives the idea that we're living this life under the complete control, here we go, of a sovereign God who reigns in heaven. He's saying that if we want to experience the fullness of joy in this life, you must change your perspective. No longer living under the sun where we have a beginning and we have an end, but changing your perspective where now you look at it from, we have a beginning, but we are not going to have an end. We're going to live eternally in one of two places, heaven or hell. But nonetheless, the soul, it's never going to die. Again, he's saying that, saying that we must change our perspective. Life is not measured by a series of sequences and events. Rather, life under heaven is an arrangement of divine occasions that have been intricately and purposely placed there by the hand of an almighty and a righteous God. I want you to notice really quickly the 14 contrasts in these eight verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 through 8. He gives some positives and he gives some negatives. He gives these 14 contrasts. Let's look at them really quickly. Verse number 2, he gives a season of commencing and a season of ceasing. Season of commencing and a season of ceasing. Here we go. A time to be born, commencing, and a time to die, ceasing. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Verse 3 and verse number 8, he gives a season of conflict and a season of comfort. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace, conflict and comfort. Verse five and verse seven, he gives a season of caution and a season of closeness. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to rend and a time to sow. 
Verse 6, he gives us a season of collecting and a season of casting. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. I'm going somewhere. I want you to listen. Latter part of verse number 7, he gives a season of communication and a season of concealment. Verse number eight, or verse number seven, it says, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Here's what Solomon is saying, and I'm gonna read it to you. In every one of these contrasts in life, whether positive or negative, whether good or whether bad, if we're going to enjoy all seasons of life, we must recognize that God is sovereign and he is in control of every season. In other words, what he's saying is that if we're going to enjoy the life here that God has given us, which by the way we're going to get to is a gift from God, if we're going to enjoy the life in which has been given us, we must understand that in the good times and in the bad times, whether it's positive or whether it's negative, God is good and God is in control. Let's have some homework here. I want you to participate. Finish the statement for me. God is good and all the time. Try it again. I want 100% participation. God is good and all the time. What about when your loved one is diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer? What about when instead of getting the promotion, you get fired? What about when your child whom you've raised in church turns 18 and they depart from the faith? In the positives and the negatives, whether good or whether bad, God is sovereign and God is in control. And God is good. Solomon tells us that if we're going to enjoy life, we must measure life by the sovereignty of God, not by the sequences of the seasons of life. If you live life under the sun, you'll only see that the positive seasons are directly from the hand of God. If you're living with the world perspective that you have a beginning and you have an end, you will only be able to experience the goodness of God when things are going in your favor. But you know what the problem is with that worldview? Number one, it's anti-biblical. But number two, what happens to your joy when your circumstances turn to shadows? Your joy goes with them, right? Your joy departs, your joy ceases. However, when life is lived under heaven in that God worldview, you see every season comes from the hand of God, both the good and the bad. When you measure life by God's sovereignty, you'll experience true joy, here we go, in all seasons of life. You'll experience true joy when your loved one is going through that ailment. You'll experience true joy whenever you don't get that promotion. When things go completely the opposite direction of what you would prefer, you still get to experience the goodness of God. You still get to experience the joy that God has given you. Why? Because you recognize God's sovereign, God's in control. Isaiah puts it this way in chapter 46 and verse number 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times to the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will uh, do all my pleasure. Solomon teaches in Isaiah accents that in order to enjoy life, we cannot live life measuring by sequence, but by resting upon the sovereign hand of God and knowing that he's in control. And it's then that we get to experience the true joy of life. Why? Because he's declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times to things that are not yet done, only a God such as ours has ever done that before. In other words, as she sang this morning, Miss Abby sang this morning, the God who is the God in the valley is also the God who's still on the mountaintop. But just to add to the song, 
He knows what's going to happen before it even takes place. Why? He's sovereign. He's in control. First thing I want us to see and notice is that life is measured by sovereignty, not sequence. It's measured by the sovereign hand of God and knowing and resting in the fact that he is in full and complete control. It's not measured by sequence and seasons. Second, wants us to notice that life is meaningful through satisfaction, not seeking. Life is meaningful through satisfaction. In other words, life finds meaning through being satisfied, not seeking. We will never come to enjoy life when we are always seeking and never satisfied. Like Solomon, many people are constantly canvassing but never content. And here's what Solomon teaches us. If we're going to enjoy life, our meaning cannot be found in the pursuit of gain but our satisfaction in God. I'll read that again and I'll read it slower. If we're going to enjoy life, our meaning cannot be found in the pursuit of gain, whether it's monetary gain, whether it's a relationship, whether it's professional gain. Our meaning cannot be found and our joy cannot be found and our purpose cannot be found in the pursuit of gain, but in our satisfaction in God, period. Not in God plus all these things. Not in God and plus all the things that are gonna go well in my life. No, our satisfaction must be found in God and God alone regardless of how he chooses to exploit the things that are in your life. I like what John Piper said in in his book, Desiring God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's a great statement, Lamar. Wonderful statement, absolutely. We gotta find satisfaction in God and we can't find satisfaction in seeking, but what does that look like? That's way easier said than done. Solomon gives us some things. Number one, he says this, God's plan is good. God's plan is good. Look at verse number 11. Again, I I made reference to this as we read it earlier. Such a beautiful verse. It says, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Powerful verse. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. A powerful verse, a beautiful verse. But it's even more meaningful when you realize what verses it follows. Whenever you read it in the context in which it appears and you realize, again, those seasons that we just went over and we talked about, time to be born and a time to die, the good and the bad and the ugly and everything in between, all these different seasons of life, hey, God makes everything beautiful. We love that part of the verse, but we hate the next part. In his time. Just as important as the things that God makes beautiful, so it is in his timing. They are a two-way street. They must go with one another. It's not just the good things that he does. It's the good thing that he does in the timing in which he chooses to do them. That's where you find the beauty. Solomon tells us that we can be satisfied in God when we rest in the fact that God's plan is a good plan. Secondly, he also tells us that God's purpose is clear. God's purpose is clear. I want you to look at verse number 11, the latter part of verse number 11. It says, also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. We could interpret it this way. Ready? God has set eternity in their hearts. What do you mean eternity? The beginning to the end. God has set eternity in their hearts. Solomon tells us that God has placed a yearning and a longing in our hearts that we will never gain in this world under the sun. There's satisfaction that is not to be had in this world because there's things that we must experience that only God can satisfy. 
You understand what I'm saying? We try so desperately hard to find satisfaction and that is exactly why I, I even preached to you tonight and exactly why I, why I formulated this series is because we're seeking for meaning and satisfaction in all the wrong places because we're seeking for a kind of satisfaction that we will never be able to find under the sun. There are things that only our mighty and our righteous and our sovereign God is able to provide satisfaction for. That doesn't stop us from trying, does it? I, I'm not preaching to the world, I'm preaching to the Christian tonight. That doesn't stop us from trying, does it? Doesn't try, uh, stop us from trying, uh, even though the Bible says in James 4, 17, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. We know we can't find satisfaction in this life, but we try so desperately hard to attain satisfaction in all the wrong places. I don't remember the quote and I don't even have it in front of me, but last week I read, I believe it was after Derek Carr, and he said something along the lines of this, the reason that we do not have joy in the pleasures of life is because we are seeking something out of those pleasures that they were never intended to deliver. Because God didn't make us for things under the sun. God made us for eternal things. God made us to have an eternal perspective. C.S. Lewis said this, it's a long statement, but I want you to listen. And, and he uses some very interesting vocabulary, but just listen. It says, the settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered abroad. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun in some ecstasy. It is not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and not oppose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with friends, a bathe, or a football match have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, I-N-N-S, some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I won't repeat the whole statement, but I'll just repeat the latter half. It says, our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. You know what he's saying? You know what Mr. Lewis is saying? He's saying that God gives us many ends or many pleasures in life, but they're only there to give us a taste of the satisfaction that we'll experience at its fullest when we see him in glory. The pleasures and the ends, I-N-N-S, that we get to experience in this life, which by the way, a whole message is themed on that, we ought to enjoy those, but understand and do not mistake those for purpose and meaning because that is only going to be satisfied when we see him in glory and we reach our heavenly home. Life is measured by sovereignty, not sequence. It's by resting in the sovereign hand of an almighty and a righteous God and not resting in the sequences and the seasons of life. Life is meaningful through satisfaction, not seeking. There are things this world cannot satisfy that only God can satisfy. Lastly this evening, life is mastered by surrender, not stress. Life is mastered by surrender, not stress. Solomon teaches us some important principles on how to enjoy life. Here it goes. You ready for them? Number one, enjoy the tender seasons of life. Enjoy the tender seasons of life. Look at verse number 12 with me. It says, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. While we don't focus on the earthly blessings that are a gift from God, we ought to at least enjoy them 
because they're God-given. Simple but often neglected is the truth that life is ever-moving and ever-changing. How many of you would agree that life moves way too fast? I feel like I blink and all of a sudden another year has passed. I feel like, yeah, I mean seriously, you look one direction and all of a sudden your kids are grown. So a couple of months ago when my little girl was born, the Harringtons watched my son, appreciate that, thank you so much for doing that, putting up with his shenanigans, but we came home from the hospital and I can remember going into our bedroom and my wife just having delivered Rory a couple hours before that, about 48 hours before that, she's holding Rory in her arms and she's leaned up against the bed and Miss Jamie came and met us at the house and brought Dax in. And I take Dax and I bring him into the room and as soon as he enters the threshold of the room, my, wa- my wife breaks into tears. I'm talking giant big alligator tears. Like the biggest tears I've ever seen her cry. And obviously, having just brought a little baby home from the hospital, I think the worst and I run over to her side and I say, what's wrong? Is everything okay? I mean, do we need to go back to the hospital? And here's what she says. He's so big! Just like that. She was crying because it feels like just yesterday we brought little Dax home from the hospital just two years ago and now we're holding little Rory in our hands and you know what it reminded us? Life moves way too fast. Enjoy the tender seasons. I was enjoying talking with Brother Mayfield this morning, grandparents for the first time, congratulations. He was talking about how uh, he was sitting, I don't know, in the living room and was listening to his son sing some songs to comfort his little boy. Do you remember when he was that age? Feels like yesterday, right? Then you blink and you turn around and your kids are grown and gone. I know this is very practical tonight, but listen to me. Enjoy the pleasant and tender seasons of life because they will be gone before you know it. Meat and potatoes right there. That's some southern logic, but it's there. Enjoy the tender seasons of life. He also tells us this, secondly, express thanks during the seasons of life. Express thanks during the seasons of life. Look at verse 13, it says, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. Why? Next part. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. It's not your labor. It's not your possessions. It's not anything that in and of yourself you were able to accomplish Every good gift and every perfect gift, what? Cometh from above. Uh, Next week, it's obviously Thanksgiving. And uh, many of us, like the rest of the world, even those who are not Christians, are going to set aside, we always do, the last Thursday of the month. We set aside a day where we go before God for those Christians, and we begin to thank Him for all that He's done. And I am definitely for Thanksgiving. But what a shame. What a shame it would be if the only time that we take opportunity to thank God for the things that he has done in our life are one day a year. Ought not be said amongst a Christian who understands that every good gift and every perfect gift doesn't come from them, it comes from above, that it should be, uh, we should live in a perpetual state of thanksgiving in understanding that we did not get what we deserved. Taking a step above that, we get what we don't deserve. Be thankful. 1 Thessalonians, in chapter number 5 and verse number 18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I don't want to rewrite the Bible, but we could say it this way. In every season, give thanks. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. What about when things are going bad? In everything give thanks. What about when I didn't get the job promotion that I wanted? In everything give thanks. What about when I didn't? What about when I didn't? Hey, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God. Express thanks during the seasons of life. Here's the last principle very quickly. Embrace the truth. Thirdly, embrace the truth about the seasons of life. Embrace the truth about the seasons of life. What's the truth? Let's talk about it. Verse number 14 and verse number 15, it says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be, uh, which is to be hath been done already. And God requireth that which is past. Man, this verse, just these two verses kind of just took me by surprise. I really didn't understand the context, but knowing the context, it completely changes the rest of the passage. Here's what Solomon is saying. Ready? We will not, are you listening? We will not give an account for the seasons of life that we experience. Why? We didn't put them there. How many of you have ever instigated a season in your life? How many of you have ever? No, none of us. Why? Because we serve an almighty and a righteous and a sovereign God. He is the one who brings things into motion. We will not give an account for the seasons of life. Nothing can be put to it nor anything taken from it. It's all in the hands of a sovereign and a mighty God. But here's what we will give an account for. Last part of that verse says, but God requireth that which is past. In other words, God is going to hold you accountable to how you respond to every season of life. Wow. God is going to hold you accountable to how you respond to the seasons in which he brings into your life. Both the good, both the bad, both the positive and the negative. You won't give an account for the season. That's beyond your control. But you will give an account for how you respond to the seasons of life. Let me ask you tonight, are you stressed about the seasons of life? You know stress is a sin. Here's the definition of stress. Stress means this, a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. Be honest tonight, how many of you are experiencing right now adverse and very demanding circumstances in your life? I don't know what it is. I don't, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands in regard, and have you give testimony, but I can, I can tell you all of us are experiencing in some way, shape, or form or have experienced or will experience diverse or excuse me, adverse and very demanding circumstances. But why worry? Why stress? Here's a biblical definition. Here's, here's what stress is. The mental or emotional feeling you get when you stop trusting the sovereign God. That's stress. All right, Lamar, you've identified stress. You've made me feel terrible. I thought this was supposed to be an encouraging message. How do we avoid living a stressful life? Real quickly, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number five, Bible says, let your conversation, that is your manner of life, be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, one of the greatest statements in the Bible, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that ye may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We could even read it this way. The Lord is my helper and I will not stress what man shall do unto me. You know what those verses tell us? And here's the message. Surrender to the sovereign hand of God 
will result in contentment, confidence, camaraderie, and calmness. Where'd you get that from? Surrender to the sovereign hand of God will result in contentment. It says, let your conversation be without covetousness, but be content with such things as you have. Confidence. He is going to do this. He's, he's saying, I'm never gonna leave you nor forsake you. Why? So that you may boldly or confidently say, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Camaraderie. What do you mean by that, Lamar? Camaraderie. What does it say at the latter part of verse number six? It says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. You wanna have a friend? Have a friend that can do something about your situation. Have a friend who's in control of your situation. Then also calmness. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Boils down to this, ready? When we surrender to the sovereignty of God, we'll find satisfaction in the life in which he's given us. When we surrender to the sovereignty of God, we'll find satisfaction in the life in which he has given us. When you are fully yielded and you are fully surrendered to the fact that you ought not have a worldly perception in regards to living life under the sun, but an eternal perspective and living life under heaven. When you surrender to the sovereign hand of God and knowing that he is in control of every season of life, you can experience true joy. You can enjoy yourself. You can enjoy a life worth living. You can enjoy the pleasures of life that can only be offered. I'm talking true joy. I'm not talking about smiling. I'm not talking about an emptiness as I referenced before. I'm talking about true joy. Let me just testify tonight. The life that I live right now, worldly speaking, I don't get to experience the kind of joys that everybody else experience, experiences, but their joy doesn't hold a candle to my joy. And somebody ought to testify right there. How many of you would agree? The life you live when you are in the center of God's will and you're yielded and surrendered to the sovereign hand of God, the joy, it's unspeakable. I was preparing for this message and whenever I come to the end of a message, I formulate what is called a take-home truth, which is a statement that formulates everything that we've talked about for the past hour and a half into one simple statement that you can take home. I'll do it in a number of different ways, whether it's a statement, whether it's reiterating the points, giving you a practical application, or maybe even reading a poem, or reading some sort of, a, a, some sort of story. But I was praying, and I was like, God, how do I, I, how, I mean, I hope you heard me tonight, that God wants you to enjoy your life. And I'm praying this way, God, how do I give them a practical application that they can take home right now and apply to their lives even tonight? I asked pastor, I was like, pastor, what would be a, a way in which we could, we could illustrate that? I even talked to my wife, so here's what we're gonna do tonight. It's gonna be different. It's not gonna be like anything that we've done before. I've already played the announcements. There's gonna be no closing prayer. There's no music practices. We got no meetings. We moved the meeting that was tonight to this afternoon. There's nothing to follow the service tonight, nothing. Here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna get together with your family, your family, Brother Flath, you get together with your family. Brother Tracy, get together with your family. Jimenezes, get together. Don't group up. Get together with your family. Get on your face with your family and start thanking God. Guys, men, don't take the mic either. Let your kids talk. I found that it's very interesting to find what, what, the, what a child will say they're thankful for, and it'll teach you something. So that's what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna separate. We're gonna get Miss Barb, if you could come play, and we're gonna separate, and all of us together are going to thank God. Here we go. Thank, don't ask him for anything. Just thank God for the gifts that he's given you. That's part one. Here's part two, and I like part two. 
It's gonna be like a Wednesday night service. We're not closing in prayer. We're not doing anything out of the, uh, that's normal. When you're done praying, get up out of your seat with your family, leave the residence of Wooden Valley Baptist Church, go home and do something with your family tonight. You understand? Don't fellowship with one another. I know that that's all important, but you're gonna go home with your family and you're gonna spend time with one another. I'm officially extending bedtime by 30 minutes for everybody tonight. Here's what I'm gonna do. We just got Disney Plus. I love Disney Plus, and I haven't had time because I've had to study for today to watch any of the old shows that I used to watch. I saw Old Yeller was on there, and I saw Lion King was on there. You know what I'm gonna do? You can laugh. I'm gonna go home tonight. I'm gonna have an ice cream cone with my family, and I'm gonna get behind the TV, and we're gonna watch Lion King. Do something tonight with your family. You know why? It's a gift. It's a gift. Maybe that should bleed into number one. Thank God for your family. But tonight, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna separate. I'm gonna pray real quick. We're gonna separate. Pray with your family. And it ought to be a prayer of thanksgiving. And when you're done, leave this place. But don't just leave and do nothing. Go spend quality time with your family. And I don't know, maybe we'll start a practice. Uh, Sunday night socials or movie nights or something of that nature. I don't know. But the importance is go spend time with your family because it's a gift from God. Can we do that tonight? Let's pray and then we'll separate Whenever we're done, uh, whenever you're done praying, be dismissed. There's no meetings, no nothing. Just go home and enjoy your family. Enjoy those tender seasons. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Thank you so much.